Proctor here with some conference announcements before we get into this week's episode. Full Stack Fest will be held in Barcelona on September 5th through the 9th. It will be comprised of two main blocks with a gap day in between. The full agenda is out and they will have industry leaders on stage from companies such as Netflix, Microsoft, Spotify, Pusher, Erlang, Twitter, Google, and many more. And make sure to visit fullstackmaster.fullstackfest.com to check out Full Stack Fest's butt that will chat with the community. Visit 2016.fullstackfest.com to find out more and to register. The Erlang User Conference is coming up in Stockholm, Sweden. The conference will be taking place on the 8th and 9th of September, with tutorials on the 7th and training running the 6th through the 15th of September, with keynotes by Fred Herbert and Simon Peyton Jones, a fireside chat with Jane Wallerud and the Erlang co-inventors Mike Williams, Joe Armstrong, and Robert Verding, as well as the rest of the speaker lineup which can be found on their website. And all attendees are entitled to participate in complimentary tutorials on the 7th of September, sponsored by Ericsson and Kista. Standard tickets are available until September 8th and get a 10% discount on the conference when you use the code FUNCTIONALGEEKRY10. Visit www.erlang-factory.com slash EUC2016 to register and to find out more. Strange Loop is sold out, but a number of surrounding events still have tickets available. ElmConf is taking place on September 15th, and tickets and information can be found at elm-conf.us. RacketCon is on September 18th, and tickets and information can be found at con.racket-lang.org. PWLConf2016 is the first full-day Papers We Love conference, co-located with the pre-conference events at StrangeLoop in St. Louis, Missouri on September 15th. PWLConf will build upon, and further, the unique experiences that the traditional Papers We Love chapter events provide. The conference intends to bring academia and industry within reach of one another, hoping to foster stronger collaboration and mutual appreciation across respective fields. Tickets to PWLConf are $40 with an optional donation and free if you're a student or recipient of a Strange Loop Opportunity Grant. Keep an eye out for updates on pwlconf.org as speakers are still being confirmed. Lambda World will be taking place September 30th and October 1st of 2016. Lambda World is the longest functional programming conference in Spain and Portugal, and one of the biggest in Europe. They expect more than 350 attendees to gather together in their awesome venue, an old tobacco factory in Cadiz downtown. The focus of Lambda World is to bring up together developers around functional programming, no matter which language they use it for. Visit www.lambda.world to sign up for tickets, CFP info, and to find out more. The 2016 edition of Scala.io is coming up. This year's edition will take place in Lyon, France on 27th and 28th of October. Scala.io is a non-profit, community-driven conference with a strong sharing spirit. With five different tracks, any functional geek will find something interesting, from beginner to advanced user. General functional programming subjects in other languages will be present as well. The regular tickets are still available for 100 euros, and the call for proposals is already open and closes Sunday, September 4th. Visit Scala.io for more information and register. CodeMesh is coming up again, taking place the 3rd and 4th of November, with tutorials on the 2nd of November. Visit CodeMesh.io to register and get a 10% discount on the conference when you use the code FUNCTIONALGEEKRY10. Most speakers have been announced, and this year's lineup looks really solid, so do check it out. ScalaWave is coming up on the 25th and 26th of November in Don's Poland. With the keynote speaker Roland Kuhn, one day of workshops, and three presentation packages, ScalaWave is created to build the network of Scala enthusiasts and experts in the area of the Baltic Sea region and beyond. Visit www.scalawave.io to find out more and to sign up for their newsletter updates. Destination Code, a new unconference starting in Utah, is having its inaugural event this December. The UnConf brings energetic and seasoned mentors into the mountain village of Summit Powder Mountain for sessions and workshops worked into the day between ski sessions, farm-to-table meals, and an inspiring getaway. Visit www.destination.codes to find out more. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, please email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I'll be happy to announce them. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and or review on iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening, and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm Russ Proctor, and this week with us we have Alex Wiener. Alex, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Hi, I'm Alex Wiener. I'm an APLer by trade and for fun. So, 
that was one of the reasons I wanted to get you on. I put some calls out for, hey, what are some other functional programming languages people would like to hear about? And there were a couple of people who tagged APL in that list and tagged you with it. So I wanted to get you on and get a good rundown of APL. All right. I briefly looked at it in the past, and it seemed pretty foreign, so I figured this is going to be one of those exploring for me as much as everybody else listening to this, because my experience has been a game of life example in APL from Code Retreats, and a brief look at Iverson's A Programming Language book. So I think probably we'll start with your background of where you came from, what you were doing before, and how you got into functional programming in APL, and then we'll set the stage for what APL really is for anybody who's only seen a cursory glance at it. Okay, so my background is I'm still fairly young and recently out of school, but uh, while I was in school, I was able to teach some summer classes and do some research in embedded systems. So my background is really low-level C assemblies, stuff like that. I was at a job fair and one organization said, yeah, we uh, program in APL. So I went back to some older staff figures at my university and said, hey, what's APL? And this guy who has been doing C for 40, 50 years, he said, oh, it's the silliest language ever. There's no practical use. And I would never use it in a million years, even if you paid me a million dollars to. And to me, this struck me as kind of odd that someone would have such a strong opinion about a language they don't use or have never used. So I went to check it out myself to see if I could either form the same bias or capture it. And so just like you, I read through Iverson's book, A Programming Language, and I decided I was not like this guy and I enjoyed it a lot. I eventually got hired at that firm and I've been doing APL ever since. So to be fair, I haven't actually made it through the book because it was one of those burst in spurts of five or 10 minutes, maybe 30 minutes at a time if I'm lucky. And that was one of the reasons that actually having someone on to talk APL would be good is I've seen just enough of it to kind of start to get a glimpse of its math background while still being confused about some of the symbols and actually (laughs) logging which each symbol represents across the terms of the book without that time. So. Sounds like you said, challenge accepted. I'm going to see if this is really a silly language or not. You picked up the book, you read through it. What were you finding as you started digging into that book? Was that something that was familiar to you or you spent heads down like, this is a challenge, I'm going to study this and knock it out and I don't get it, but I'm going to just to prove them wrong? Or what was that process of first picking it up looking like? So this was later when I was at university, and I actually decided to focus a little more on, oh, so I'm an electrical engineer. That was my degree. So I focused a lot in computer architectures. And the book is, they use APL to describe a computer architecture. And so I've already read a couple books about other architectures, and it was kind of refreshing. Here's a totally foreign way to describe essentially the same stuff I've already learned about. But you're picking that book up. You're learning about this other computer architecture, and for most people, it is something that is completely foreign. They might recognize some of the math symbols and remember some of that and roughly translate it. So what were you thinking as you went through? There was the novel of, hey, this is an interesting architecture, but then there was the language itself, right? Yeah, so essentially, instead of, in other books, I would see XML diagrams or UML kind of trying to describe the load, brings it into the adder, etc. But essentially, he kind of tried to stick to the classic math symbols whenever possible. So instead of an assembly, maybe you write jump and then a register holding a number. In APL, it's just a right pointing arrow and, and then the line number. It's kind of like, hey, go to that guy. And if you try not to think too hard about it, it kind of explains itself. So to assign a variable, it's a left pointing arrow. So like A gets five. Oh, that guy. So pretty much I tried to just use my traditional math reasoning to get through it because there are only so many ways to very simply describe a computer in the 60s, I think. And apparently at some point it clicked besides just being the interesting architecture because you decided you wanted to move on to a job. And 
just again, very high level from what I remember because it was a number of years ago and I do need to go back and pick it up at some point. But there were things like, hey, here's a matrix multiplication or some vector math and some of this other stuff. And from what I'd seen with the Conway's Game of Life, you got unions and intersections and this. And it seems very mathematically formal as well, right? Definitely. So the original notation was used to teach linear algebra. And I knowing that, it also appealed to me because essentially... What electrical engineering really comes down to is a lot of applications of linear algebra. So I kind of liked it for that. I had done a little bit of image processing, and I said, oh, the matrix is the base data type. That might be cool to explore. And it is essentially, it seemed to have a lot of things that I wanted in a language and didn't have a lot of the stuff I didn't want in a language. So if you wanted to do Java, you need to install an IDE. There's a whole hoopla of setup. With APL, the approach was kind of, this should be writable on a blackboard. And so after I read through that book, I found some other resources and tried to make heads or tails of the more complicated ideas. So that book isn't necessarily computable. You can't type in that APL anymore. So I wanted to try and get my hands on some real working APL, but it's a little harder than you'd think because it's been such a small community spread out over time that it's hard to get your hands on some real working code. And that was going to be my next question was, as you started going through, you picked up this book, you started to get into it, you started to see some appeal there from your various backgrounds of architecture and linear algebra and whatnot. How did you, it was just, you hunted around and tried to find the examples and find that small community of people who were actually doing APL or had examples or playing with it. Or was there resources that you did manage to find a professor at school or you just went into the job and wound up learning it on the job back to that company that you were talking about and talking to that first exposed you? What was that progression looking like and what were those steps that you found to actually make something that would help blog since the book's not something you can type in and start working from today if someone goes and finds that book? Yes, I would say it didn't really click until I was on the job and there were some people who had been doing APL their whole life and were able to show me some sort of master of revealing their tricks or something. Like, ah, this is the way you do it. And that's when I started to see the things you read about really applied and, and put into power. And that's definitely what set off my ability to do APL. And then I found papers spread throughout time, mostly on acm.org. In their digital library, there's like a, a lot of stuff there and other publications online that exist for APL and related languages. And then obviously, like any programming language, the only real way to learn it is to do it. And I've been doing it for a, a bit now. And so you get in, you have the wizards revealing their tricks at your job because they've been doing APL forever. <laughs> what were some of those conceptions you had about? the programming coming from the more machine level of assembly or C when you're working on an EE degree and thinking about that style of architecture and how you're moving things around and getting the computer to do things versus when you have these people mentoring you with a large body of experience in APL, what were some of those shifts in mentality that helped you trigger and say, I kind of got it before, but I think I'm really starting to get it. What are some of those things that you were able to kind of have that enlightenment of? So before APL, I've never actually looked at functional programming. And, you know, I'd be working on hardware and very low-level stuff and say, oh, there, someone's probably writing high-level application code somewhere. I just haven't met them yet. So when I started doing APL, it was my first exposure to application programming where you kind of not care about your underlying implementation. And it was more about getting things done, stuff that people would use rather than, oh, how do I interface this chip with this chip? So it's kind of enlightening to me to see that a kind of different field of where programming is being applied. And then I'm guessing because it's that higher level abstraction that you were also working in the higher level abstractions and you weren't taking advantage of some of the jumps and bit shifting and lower level stuff that you might be doing in C at the machine level when you're trying to think about 
how do I get these two components to communicate back and forth and exchange their data versus what you were doing in your job, which is more solving other business style problems? So when I got to the job and you learned some APL techniques, as someone who's worked with like C and assembly, it kind of, I kind of got shocked a little bit because some of the techniques are very similar. And it's only because you have to account for when APL was developed. This was also before control structures were developed in a formal sense. Your languages wouldn't come with uh, your ifs and your whiles and your fors. APL has a different construction for iterating over items in a list. And sometimes you have a complex data. I don't want to use the word object, but object. And it turns out that what you see in application code is sometimes people would essentially do the same tricks they do in assembly. And they use branching and line labels to construct a while or a for loop. So a lot of my skills working very close to the hardware actually translated really well to APL. And one of the other key things in APL is for selection, essentially you kind of create a giant bit mask for your list and then apply it to your list. So it's kind of funny seeing these same techniques that EEs use to do hardware programming used at the super high functional level. And I'm guessing that's a lot of the math basis in both languages, at least as you were exposed to from your EE side, and then the strong math basis that APL has given? I would think so. And so you were shocked about those similarities. What were some of the big differences that you found that shocked you? Just Was there a level of expressivity on some of these problems or just a completely different style? Because if APL is a more functional language... And especially with its math background, as you said, of linear algebra, you're thinking in transformations and function applications a lot. What was that mind shift there between some of that style of the C or that level back to thinking in some of the higher level abstractions that you get out of math that you weren't necessarily, that was different than just the bit masking or some of that other stuff that you were doing that was common between the two? So I would say you would get caught up less in the notation in APL. So for example, the separator when you're writing a list is the space, which kind of makes sense if you think about it from when it was handwritten. You know, who would want to waste all that energy writing a semicolon or a comma between each number in your list? And the fact that it's infix rather than prefix or postfix was kind of really nice to type. So, you know... Your multiply operation isn't mul with parentheses. It's literally the multiplication symbol, you know, little x. So you could put your arguments on the left and right of it. And so you kind of didn't need to learn a new notation. It was already the math I knew, which kind of made things easier to understand. And so you take this, you get the job. On the pre-call, you said it was the financial processing industry and doing stuff around that. What was some of the kind of stuff that lended itself to that aspect and that domain? Since you also said that a lot of people think APL is relegated to that domain, even though it's broader. What are some of those things that make it very powerful that you said that we've got a whole team here that's dedicated to using APL as opposed to any other language? So it's half and half. It's an interpreted language and it's really old. The company I was working at happened to be about 30 years old. So if you're starting a startup company about 30 years ago and you looked at the selection of languages, APL was just one on the list. Also, with financial applications or finance in general, it's heavily regulated. You sometimes have changes that that happen on specific days or short notice changes. And APL kind of lent itself to that being interpreted. You could open up a section, change it, and have the code immediately take effect as any interpreted language. So it's more about the time that the company started and the interpretability of the language. Okay, and I wasn't sure where some of those strengths of APL lie in the fact of... Oh, it's also um, the... Ability to represent your data as a matrix really lends itself to books and records and stuff like that. Yeah, and this was leading into, in the pre-call, you said you're doing some side projects in it. 
as well. And so it's finding that balance of some of it is digging into APL and understanding what it is for people who haven't done it and trying to give a sense of where that power becomes useful because you're also on your side projects saying, hey, I'm doing my side projects in here to show it's not just financial. Even though there's a preconceived notion, it's about that. Is that just the age of the industries for the financial stuff? Or is there some other stuff that says that leads it to the relegated myth of it's only for this really kind of domain? Because I've heard the same things being said about F sharp a number of years ago and some of these other functional programming languages where it's all academic and they fit great in these things and here's why, but nobody really uses this in the real world. And while that's starting to change and has been moving faster, it seems, I was wondering what some of those preconceived notions about APL were and why it seems like it fits in that thing since you said that's very strongly niched down to a lot of that financial processing stuff. Yeah, so this is mostly just the industry and who's doing it as a business. There are small firms years ago, some of them have closed, some of them have been sold off, etc. And some of them are still doing it. So it's just, you know, if you met an APL, the probability that they were working on a financial application was pretty great. It was just happenstance, I guess. I'm using that word right. Yeah, and that was what I was trying to get at, is how much of it was just happenstance, coincidence, serendipity for this domain versus if the financial processing side, which seems and sounds to be really math heavy, had great benefit of picking the APL as well. Even nowadays, if someone else is saying, well, I got my financial application side, let's do this in APL. So yeah, the mathematical nature of it definitely lends itself better to finance than other languages, you could argue. But it's a matter of who actually started doing it and what they knew, which, you know, 30 years down the road, I wouldn't have too much say in. <laughs> but yeah, so it's the mathematical nature, and you see all the calculations used to determine different financial calculations. So it'd be kind of, oh, this is easy to uh, read this math book and then implement it in this language. Okay, and yeah, it's trying to tease that out because, again, I have a very limited view of it. I think I've seen... A few of those chapters of the book, and then the other one was the Game of Life, as I mentioned earlier, which is just a matrix problem. And from what little I had read of the book and seen of that is it fits well with matrix-style operations. And so I was trying to figure out those kind of things in that nature. So one of the key things about APL is that it has a matrix as its data type. If you have a one-row matrix, it's a vector. And if you have a one-element matrix, it's a scalar. And the symbols, which are essentially, you can consider them the standard library of APL, they work kind of, I want to say, natively across data types. So if you have a 3 by 3 matrix, you put the multiply symbol, you have another 3 by 3 matrix. There's no extra overhead boilerplate code that you need to do to say multiply this by that. There is the dot product and outer product for those as well. So you can say, you know, this, dot, that together, as well as the other functions. So, for example, you know, in linear algebra, you take a scalar and multiply by a matrix. It just multiplies or return in the matrix by that scalar. The same thing in APL. I can do five times this matrix, and that's it. That's all the code you need to write to multiply that scalar by that matrix. And so you're taking this... You mentioned on the pre-call that you've got some other side work that you're doing with this to show that APL isn't just relegated to this. There is use, and it is a feasible language at a broader level. So do you want to expand on some of that stuff that you're doing with it? Sure. So besides programming, I do have an appreciation for art. And seeing as how it can hold matrices really well, I said, well, how about I try to write something that'll do image processing of any sort, right? If I could hold data as a matrix, all these algorithms that work on matrices for computer vision and image processing should work, right? And if you're using a more popular language, you go and you pull in your image library and you load in your image and you be about your merry way. But then you find out that, hmm, no one's written some code that'll read some raw bytes and give me a nice matrix. So you go on that sidetrack and you learn how to do that. 
And then, so you do your image processing code, and that's great. It works, and it looks beautiful. But then you have to share it with people and show off and brag about what you've done. <laughs> so uh, I've you know, detoured into learning how to, you know, my background is electrical engineering. I'm not too familiar with web technology, although I am more and more familiar with it every day. But essentially, I'm, I, right now, I'm in the process of building a little social networks so that people can log in, run my application that I wrote in APL, and view an image of their own creation. So I'm writing the CGI to generate the web pages, as well as the back end, all in APL. Just Because I feel like if I could say, here, go to my website, run this program, and make an image, I feel like if someone can do that on their own, that's definitely a good demonstration that this language is really feature complete and not just a toy. And so you're doing image manipulation and processing. What kind of stuff are you finding along that lines? Because it seems like if you've got this matrix or you, I think you even said you might have this bitmap representation in APL and you're talking about these images, which of course there's a bitmap format for an image. What kind of processing are you doing? Is this you're generating new images and making up images or are you doing other transformations of images or and what does this look like that you're trying to get and where does the APL stuff come in with how that maps into that domain of processing and manipulating these images? Okay. So the main application is this idea I had a couple of years ago and it's essentially the input is two images and a tiling size and it'll cut up one image into tiles of that size and try to recreate the other image based off features computed for the tiles. So kind of like a mosaic of one image made out of another with a variable tile size. And then once I get the web portion working, there are plans to expand that to more traditional stuff like, oh, maybe I want to rotate this photo 90 degrees, but that's less important to me right now. But where APL comes in with that is that it's very easy to segment a matrix into submatrices. So I thought in this application, it's kind of a very nice visual demonstration of what APL does. Oh, it's just a matrix. I can chop it. I can apply the same function to all of these very simply. In fact, the code that does that is about 175 lines. Not much for the whole meat of the image processing algorithm. So you're doing this and you're, you again, you're using APL as this example language to show off A, some APL and B, what it can do in other domains. What are some of those things that you found? Cause it's more than just the matrix slicing, right? You're doing other kinds of matching and computation on these image pieces, right? Mm -hmm. So it's kind of an idea stolen from machine learning where you would compute features on data to kind of match up and find similar portions. What you find when you're aiming for an artistic application is that complicated algorithms that get a really nice match. So like maybe you're using the weighted standard deviation for each tile and it'll find definitely the other tile that matches the closest in its qualities, but it may not be visually appealing. And what you find is actually just taking the sum for every tile actually kind of makes a nice visually appealing photo. What I haven't gotten to experiment yet in is feature computations that maybe takes into account where a value is in a submatrix. So tile that's all zeros, but a five in the bottom right corner, it looks the same as all zeros with a five in the top corner. But obviously the orientation is different, which I haven't accounted for yet. Other parts of it, one of the parts that I really enjoyed was moving data to and from the web browser, because initially when you look into it, you've set all the tutorials you find online say, oh, PHP will just give you the variables that you've put in the form. No work needed on your part. And that always kind of bugged me. I said, well, I want to know what's going on there. And the more and more you dig into it, you find the original RFC that describes the uh, protocol. And it turns out to be super simple in APL. It's actually only a line of code to parse that message and get out the data. And the same thing for uh, even reading images. It turned out to be very straightforward. I would argue even more straightforward than it is to write the same code in C to read an image into an intelligible format 
into an environment. And so what are some of these features that help make this so condensed and straightforward to write an APL? You've talked about for your image processing, you had your matrix and creating sub matrices. And you also talked about the uniformity of like multiplication operator against matrices. What are some of these other things that you found that APL gives you out of the box that helps take apart something like this RFC and make it down into one line to pull form data out? Or what's some of that power in there as well that can help make this so concise and expressive at the same time? Okay. So a couple of things that are, great about APL's expressivity are two things. I would say the map, which isn't totally a correct term, but we'll call it a map for right now, as well as the each. So in APL, there's this symbol. It looks like two dots, I guess, on the upper portion, kind of like an umlaut. And it's used for function applications. So if you have a list of numbers and and you want to apply a function to each of them, you do function each, and then you just have your list. So uh, there's that. And it's really easy. It's essentially, instead of writing loops, you apply your function to each because you literally use the word when you're describing what the code does. It kind of flows very nice. For example, sum everything in a matrix for each matrix in my image. So the code that does that is literally only a couple symbols because you're able to take a function and say each to a giant list of data. There's also the mat. So there are ways to essentially, I think Lisp does this, but I haven't done enough, enough Lisp to know. So if you have a list of numbers and you want to find the maximum in there, there's a symbol that'll take a left and a right argument and give you a maximum. But if you take that and you give it a slash and a list of numbers, how it's described is you take that function, the max function, you insert it in between each pair, and then you process the list from right to left. And the result of it will eventually be your largest in the list. And so those two tools, for me personally in my application, seem to be super useful to get a lot of tests done that might be uh, bothersome to do in other languages. Okay, and that kind of equates the concept of the map, reduce, and filter which are in other languages and the fact that APL has that as well, but it sounds like it becomes even more concise because instead of writing out the whole term of reduce or map or each or whatever it is, you've now got this shorthand symbol that if you know how to read it, you can easily identify this as that function, which helps make it even more concise then as far as it's just another word. Correct. Yeah, so for example, the maximum symbol, it looks like a vertical bar with a little horizontal bar hanging off the top right. So to find the max for each list, it would be max, the maximum symbol, a slash, and then each. And then you could have your matrices. You would take that max slash and apply it to each matrix. And then when you're defining your functions, is there anything special about defining some of these special functions? in APL, aside from you're just assigning them to a variable, but is there anything special about functions? I know some languages, it's down to one argument, or there are other languages that are multiple arguments, or now you need to overload it to be able to support a scalar versus a map versus a vector, and some of these kinds of things. What are some, what's some of the stuff that it gets you there in terms of power, and how much is out of the box, and how much is on you to define when relegated to different but semi-compatible data types. Okay, so I believe I'm using this term correctly, and I know there are APLers out there that'll correct me. I believe the term is called rank invariance. So the idea is that if you're writing a function that works on a scalar, it would appropriately ex extend itself to vector and matrix and higher dimensional matrix. So a lot of the symbols in APL are also kind of built in. So, for example, we have IOTA, which uh, is find the first instance in a list, and Epsilon, which will create a bit mask in equal length to your list with ones where your items are. Another thing is that all the functions take two arguments, a left and a right, kind of like your traditional math symbols typically do. 
And I kind of, you know, I've done other languages that allow for you to have as many arguments as you want, but I kind of like the limitation here because it kind of forces you to really think about what function you're writing and if it could be simpler, more decoupled, so that it does have to take only two arguments rather than having a one argument on the right that actually is a list of four or five things and having to parse that within the function itself. So a lot of the symbols end up giving you a lot of high-level power. You can find in, you can search, you can map, filter. So you end up like not ever having to write a binary search in APL because you can just do find the elements in this list as a built-in. And so with your find, if we were going to just roughly describe it, you would have some sort of function that holds true for every element and returns a Boolean. You would do your iota. Yep. And then that would give you your bit masked zeros and ones. Oh, no, no, no. I'm sorry. So, for example, I just opened up an interpreter on the other screen so I get this example worded correctly. So, for example, if you had a list that was 3, 5, 7, 9, 10, and you're trying to find 7 in that list, which is the third item, you would have as your left argument to the epsilon, your list, 3, 5, 7, 9, 10. And then as your right argument, you would have a 7. The result of running that would give you 0, 0, 1, 0, 0, which is a bit mask, which you could either use to select or... There are other tricks to determine the index of that value. Yeah. So with that three seven three five seven nine ten example, if I wanted to find, say, all the evens or all the multiples of five, I would take that list, epsilon, so the find all for the bitmax, anything that's mod five of zero, and then I would essentially union that with the original list or something to be able to get back the reduce set. Is that kind of how you would think about doing that and approaching that problem? So we actually have mod. Uh, so I would say I would mod the list itself rather than trying to work on a derived sort of variable. So if I wanted to find the odds in a list of three, five, seven, nine, ten, I would store that in a variable and kind of treat that and, you know, just apply modulus to it itself rather than, I feel like I'm talking in circles here. I'm really sorry. That's okay. And some of what I'm trying to get out is trying to understand the, how you approach the problems in thinking in APL with some of these examples. So you have this list and you're trying to find those things that are the even elements and get, do you do subset that down to a smaller set of the list based off that bitmap and masking? Or how does how do you think about some of that stuff? What's the APL way of thinking? Uh, okay, so a lot of APL is selection and indexing. So in our previous example where we're just identifying seven, for example, we do this trick. You see it all over the place in different code bases. I don't know who invented it. It's essentially this trick called Omega which will return the indices of ones in a Boolean vector. And then you could apply that to your original data set. So if we have A gets 3, 5, 7, 9, 10, and you do uh, omega, which is it's a pretty short phrase, but uh, it's usually a given in most systems. And you give it 0, 0, 1, 0, 0, which is the result of using epsilon to find the 7, it returns 3. So um, let's say our goal was to turn all 7s into 20s. You now have the index based off the Boolean from your epsilon, and then you can just do indexed assignment and say A of 3 gets 20. Okay, and this is starting to lead me down to some of the other problems that I've thought about just in general and compare some of these solutions to something that's more familiar. And that starts to put in my head something like the fizz buzz problem where multiples of three are fizz, multiples of five are buzz and three and five become fizz buzz. And it seems like that kind of transformation, whether or not it's fizz buzz specifically, but when you're doing that, you kind of want to mark 
select out, do the manipulation, insert it back in. As opposed to some of the just general traversing you might have with maps and filters and reduce. In general, it sounds like you get some of that more higher power there because it takes care of the iteration. It it sounds like it introduces a whole nother level of abstraction where you've now got that bit mask and it knows how to apply that stuff and get you the indexes instead of you having to just think in terms of the trues and falses. Yeah, so you're you're kind of thinking, what's the qualities that I want in this list rather than iterating over each of them and saying, oh, is this, let's say, for example, divisible by three, you say, I want a bit mask, essentially, that marks every spot that is divisible by three. And so we get this, we start thinking in this APL way of thinking. You said some of that was online publications, whether it's ACM or others. What were some of the things that you found that also helped guide you as far as starting to think in this APL way? Because it seems familiar, but still different enough than some of these other functional languages that I've seen and some of our audience might have seen. And I know you said you hadn't done a lot with the other ones, but was there some of these things that some of these mentors at your work taught you about making sure you're thinking in this way? So. As people start to understand, they get a better understanding of not only some of the functions and features in it, but the mindset that comes through. And that's where I was digging through with how do you treat some of this processing and trying to use your examples of the bitmap images. Now, if we come back and we take a step back now that we've established some of that ground, what are some of those things, if we look back at a higher level, that become the shifts and mindsets of how you approach the problems given the examples. We started a little bit about the indexing mm-hmm. and transformation. Was there anything else like that that helped change the way you think about doing these problems when you approach something in APL? I would say that you kind of have to forget all your traditional approaches. And if you start thinking about iterating over a list, you've already lost the game Seeing a lot of code at work uh, was definitely eye-opening to all the different amazing ways you can do APL, because you can certainly choose to kind of use almost any symbols you want, not necessarily saying that's a good thing. But also, I guess, just knowing the problem-solving approach of you kind of want to partition your list into set segments, create bitmasks, use the indexed assignment. And as long as you know those are the tools in your toolkit, you can kind of reason at the rest of them. So I have two lists. I've partitioned them into different smaller sets, and I can use the union or the intersection symbols or the tilde, which is a without kind of operation, to work on these different sets of data. So it's a lot more um, high-level net rather than An example that would maybe bring back to uh, image processing is, let's say you want to transpose the image. It may be in C. You're iterating over your items. You have one item. You need to determine how much you're transposed, where am I going to be located, point the data over there, et cetera, et cetera. In APL, because we're a linear algebra language, we actually have a couple symbols. One of them is transpose, one of them is rotate horizontal, and one of them is rotate vertical. So you kind of see that the symbols in the language kind of forced you to work at a higher level and solve problems like that. Okay. And because I've got only the vaguest of familiarity with seeing some examples of APL and still don't understand it, I'm going to try and ask you the question of what else wasn't I able to ask that causes you to get excited about APL? You've got this job. You're excited to do these side projects and do this image stuff to show people about APL. What is it really that gets you down in the core about APL that makes you show it off and want to say, hey, this is this is valuable and it can be used for other things. And here's why I'm so fond of it. I'd say above all else, and this might just sound very simplistic, but it's the easiest language to type. There's not a lot of extra boilerplate that you have to add. And I'm talking literally 
I hear Java has a lot of getting, setting, etc. It's not object-oriented languages where you have to have private, public. Obviously, there are locals and globals, but you know, object-oriented always takes that to the a new level. And yeah, it's just the fact that you're typing less to get more done to me is invaluable. Because when it comes to the end of the day, that's what we're doing, typing. And if I could get more done and less keystrokes, then that's positive for me. And with those less keystrokes, I'm assuming it's also more expressive instead of just being condensed down into some sort of golf-style program, right? So personally, having seen such fantastic APL, at home I, I try to write legibly. I'm not trying to do the craziest trick to do the most efficient computation. I'm trying to read it a month or two from now. So you just mentioned that when you write it at home and on your side projects, you try and write this so you can come back to this in two months versus being clever. Have you noticed that there's a difference in APL compared to other languages because whether or not it's your assembly or C that you might be writing or the Perl, which people joke about being a write once, read never language or any other language, which is just say, if I'm not disciplined, I can come back and be like, what was I writing? Have you noticed the difference with APL? Or is that just the same with any other language that you might, depending on how much discipline you exert at the time of writing it? I would say that it ranges. You could definitely solve problems in a complex manner, and you could solve problems in a very simple manner. I strive for the more readable APL. People don't just say that about Perl. People definitely say that with APL too. I've done a little bit of Perl, and I would say that APL and Perl are more similar than they would both probably like to admit, at least in how they solve problems, uh, which is really interesting to uh, discover, I guess. I've seen some really, really scary-looking APL, but... Usually once you work through it, you see that it's like a very deliberate, I would say maybe even beautiful manipulation and nothing kind of, you know, it's dense. So you have to take time to read it. But once you do read it, it ends up being very clear. You go, ah, that's what they were doing. And we're getting towards the end of our time for the call. So we ranged all over. I probably didn't ask the best questions with a lack of understanding to be able to establish a good baseline. But again, in your perspective, we gave what made APL appeal to you, but is there anything else we didn't mention about APL that, that we would be remiss if we didn't at least mention and let people know about? Yes. If you're interested in doing APL, it's a very small community and you will meet all of us pretty quickly. And we welcome everyone with open arms. And we always hope that there are more people out there doing APL and trying to get involved and interested in it. Because there's not a lot of us. Let's be completely honest. It's a kind of a fun party trick if you go to parties with programmers to say, hey, I'm a real APLer. That's right. Go and touch my arms. I'm not a hologram. And so because it's the small community, have you noticed or can you share any of your experiences for advice of people who might be interested be puzzled enough about this or have enough experience that they say, okay, now I want to check out more and start to do some basic examples and just get a feel of what APL is like. You mentioned you had a hard time starting finding those resources. After you've gone through that, do you have any recommendations for people to start now based off what you've learned, had to learn the hard way? <laughs> yeah, so the largest vendor for APL interpreters is a company called Dialog. D-Y-A-L-O-G. They run a website called tryapl.org, and it's a web browser interface and a little pop-up APL keyboard. And I think it gives you some examples to work through, but essentially you can have a live interpreter, APL interpreter in your browser to actually give it a try out. There are also a couple of books, I believe, Mastering Dialog APL. There's also J, which is a related language, which has a good wiki and base for resources. There's even a APL to J dictionary, which I used a lot because some resources in J are a lot clearer than they are in APL. So you would read one, find the dictionary and see the related term and go to APL and do it. There's also a 
I think in mid 2014 it came out is uh, GNU APL. So there's the bug mail list there, which is full of experts that you could ask people questions. I know I certainly ask my fair share of silly questions there. And then you could also reach out to me. I'll answer any APL questions that uh, any curious listeners have if we didn't cover it here. And you mentioned Jay, and I had seen some vague stuff a number of years ago about Jay. I believe it was Ron Jeffries on his blog had a series where he was just trying stuff with Jay. Is that actually related to an APL or is that just some of the similar mindset since you said there's the APL to Jay dictionaries? So, in fact, it's so related. Ken Iverson, who invented APL, co-invented Jay with a guy named Roger Huey, who, and I believe Roger works with dialogue nowadays, actually. So that's what I mean when I say it's a very small community. Okay, so that may be another place for people to check out more and at least get a rough feel of some of this stuff then, too, That, as far as additional documentation goes, then. Yeah, definitely. There's a whole host of uh, related languages that are definitely worth perusing. So with all of that, I tried to cover a lot and tried to ask as many intelligent questions, but I think we're close to our time now, so hopefully I've got some more APL people coming forward and we can cover anything else that we haven't based due to recommendations of listeners. And so do you have anything you want to plug before we let you go? Is there anything that you're working on? Are you going to any conferences? Are there any APL meetups that people go to that talk about And do you have anything that you just want to let people know about in general, whether it's your personal projects, like your image capture for them to go track down and see some examples or anything in general that you want to let people know about? Sure. So uh, later this year in October, I'm presenting at the Dialogue Conference. I believe they call it a user meeting now, but it's essentially the yearly, it's the biggest APL conference. This year it's in Glasgow, Scotland. And I'll be talking more in depth about my image project there. It isn't quite live yet, but it will be by then. Yeah. And if anyone has any questions or wants to reach out to me about new opportunities, and I love to answer questions and people can reach out to me. My email is alexweiner at alexweiner.com. And then do you have any call to actions for the listeners that you want them to take away from listening to this episode? It sounds like at least go out and check out some APL with Try APL. But is there any other call to action that you have for the listeners? I don't think so. <laughs> I'm kind of blanking out right now. And so where can people find you? You mentioned your email address. Where are the best places for people to track down, track you down and keep up to date with what's going on in your world? That's a great question. You can also follow me on Twitter. I try to post big events there. Pretty much my email. My personal website is alexweiner.com. And there's a blog there that I try to keep up to date for when I do interesting uh, programming projects. And I'll get those in the show notes as well. Mm-hmm. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you, Alex, for indulging me and answering and trying to answer my poor questions on APL and giving me some insight into what it is and helping dispel misunderstandings about some of APL. So thanks for taking your time talking to me. It's been enlightening and it's been moved up as well amongst many other things that I still have to go back and check out and keep learning about because it sounds like there's a lot there to dig in and change the way of thinking as well with just yet another example of a new style of expressing your intent in software. (laughs) Thank you so much for uh, having me. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.